You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. book, the fourth gospel there in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. We're going to be in John chapter 1 this morning. Make a couple of announcements uh, while you're doing that. Today, um, if you've not had a chance or you haven't, you know, you've been thinking, ah, maybe I'll sign up for Financial Peace University, um, do that today. So they've got a little table right out there, just right outside those doors. Um, you will be greatly blessed if you've never done Financial Peace University, or if you've done it in the past and think, we need a refresher. It is an outstanding time to uh, be in the community. It will function like a small group. You'll get to go through Dave Ramsey's material. It is um, outstanding if you've never done it, and so I encourage you to do that if you haven't. And then also, this morning is a great morning for you to um, sign your name on the list that says, you know what, I'm interested in life groups. I want to be in one. I don't know how to get in one, but we can help you with that. Um, to sign up this morning. There's a life group table out there. We'd love for you um, to begin this fall with us, this new sort of church calendar season in community, if you're not in community. And so we've got a lot of great life groups and some new life groups starting up, and so we'd love for you to be a part of that. All right. So John chapter 1. Here's what I want to do. I want to read the first 18 verses of John chapter 1, and then I want to come back through, and I want to talk through those verses. We begin a series today, and we are going to look at the Gospel of John from beginning to end. And this morning, we will begin with the first 18 verses, and this is how John writes it. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything made, not anything was made that... Let me start that over. Even the preacher gets confused. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. True light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses, grace and truth 
came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the right, who, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The word of the Lord. Well, Mark, in his gospel, he does not record the birth of Jesus. He begins his gospel by jumping straight into Jesus' ministry. Matthew will begin his account uh, with the story of an angel visiting Joseph in a dream to tell about Mary's pregnancy and the child that was to be born, a Savior for all the people. Luke's gospel, it begins with angels coming to Mary and revealing to her what, uh, what was God was going to do through the Holy Spirit to bring the Messiah into the world through this young girl. She's the virgin who is going to give birth to Jesus, the, the king. But Matthew's visitors were wise men. Luke's visitors were shepherds. But that's not how John begins. John, certainly, he begins with Jesus as well, but he doesn't begin at the birth. He, he actually, what he does is he begins at creation. He, he, be, he actually, not just creation, he actually begins before creation. He, he begins before there was time. See, John wants his readers to know. He wants us to know this morning, to be clear right from the beginning who Jesus is, who, where he's from, what, why he came. In fact, Micah calls Jesus the ancient one. And that's where John begins. John begins here, before, at the time before creation, at the time before there was time. And then John's going to end his gospel at the very end of chapter 20. He ends it, and this is the purpose that he has in mind, the end to which he's leading us as readers. John's purpose for the gospel is clearly stated there at the end of 20, we'll, we'll read all through John and get to the purpose, and that is this, that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing, you may have life in his name. Two, two reasons, uh, that you believe Jesus is the Christ, he's the Son of God, and that by believing, you'd have life, you'd have eternal life in Him. You know, one of the reasons that I love the Gospel of John so much is, one, because of who wrote it. You know, John was one of Jesus' disciples. He grew up a fisherman. He became one of Jesus' closest friends. And, uh, in fact, John will call himself, most humbly, the one whom Jesus loved. He... Um, we, we find later on uh, he is um, maybe the, the fastest sprinter of all the apostles. If there was a race, he would have been the one that would have won. He beats Peter in a foot race to the tomb and the resurrection scene. John worshipped Jesus. Now think about this for a minute. John is a man who worshipped Jesus until the end of his life. And, and I don't mean that he thought Jesus was, you know, awesome at miracles and he was a great preacher and, you know, that he talked about him all the time. And I don't mean that he was just loyal to their friendship and defended him when somebody said something that was untrue or damaging. It, I, I don't even mean that John thought of Jesus as a great man and that 
being close to him, his friendship with him made him a better person. That's, that's not what I mean. I mean this, that John worshipped Jesus as a God. John came to understand Jesus as the God of the universe, the second person of the triune God. And he worshipped him to the end of his life. John outlived all the other apostles by many years. Probably died somewhere in his 90s. What John came to understand about Jesus is that he is God. I'll back up for just a minute. So God's invisible. Or, or maybe let's say it this way. God is beyond our five senses. He heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. That's how, that's how the psalmist will describe it. So, so he doesn't dwell in a place that's made by human hands. The earth and, and all that's in it belongs to God. He, he holds all things together. He himself cannot be held. He cannot be seen, and yet he's, he's present everywhere, and the heavens display his handiwork. That, that's God. And in Genesis chapter 1, which is what John's alluding to, by the way, says that God created the heavens and the earth simply by speaking, by, by, by speaking a word. What it means is that when the mind of God formed the word of God, creation happened. Sometimes we, we envision it maybe as the Father giving a command and then the Son obeying the command. So let there be light. And then Jesus runs down to earth and makes light. That's not how it happens. It's far more intimate. It's far more powerful than that. The Word itself created. When the mind of God uttered the Word of God, creation so what John is going to tell us is that word, that creating word, that when the mind of God forms the word of God, that this word, this word of God, who is God, was with God, and from the very beginning, he was there. In the beginning was the word. The word uh, in the Greek is the word logos. Um, it means word or message. Um, throughout John's gospel, uh, Jesus will speak a word. In fact, um, his followers will, will believe his word. They'll abide in his words. They'll keep his words. All this in John's gospel. But for John, Jesus' ministry, so it is the word. But notice, John is saying something different here. The Word is more than just something spoken or expressed or articulated. The Word is a person. Let's get our minds around this for a second. So, so in, in the time that John was writing, there are probably two streams of this, of this word logos that um, um, influenced John, or at least the readers in his day. One would have been a concept that would have come from the Hebrews, from the Old Testament Scriptures. And it's hard to read John 1.1, in the beginning, and not think of Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be light, and, and there was light. Like the psalmist in Psalm 33 will say, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and the breath of his mouth all their hosts. 
the mind of God, revealed by the Word of God, it's the mind of God and the Word of God in creation. That's how the Hebrews would have seen it. Well, the Greeks, um, they had a little bit of a different concept, and that goes all the way back to like 560 B.C., And in fact, it goes all the way back to Ephesus in 560 B.C., which, interestingly enough, John, the Gospel of John, is likely written, John is likely, the the Apostle John is likely in Ephesus when he writes this. And the concept of Logos goes all the way back to Ephesus, 500 or more years, 600 years before this is written. And there's a man, an Ephesian philosopher, And he observes that the world is created in this sort of state of flux. Everything's always changing. In fact, he gives the example of a river. He says you can go to a river, you can put your foot in the river, you can take it out, you can put your foot back in the river five minutes later, and it's a different river because the water's flown. That's how everything is in the world. It's always in this state of flux. It's always in a constant flux, but if so, why is there not total chaos? That's what he was asking himself. How is there any sense in a world? How can there be any order in a world that's constantly changing? And his answer was that the constant state of flux, not haphazard, it was controlled, it was ordered by this um, uh, something that transcended everything, and, and, the, and the control was logos. The Stoic philosophers, they picked that up. And they never see it as something personal, but it was controlling, it was organizing. In fact, it even transcended um, Zeus, who was their main god. Something above Zeus was happening, and they called that Logos. And Philo comes along, and he bridges both of these concepts, and he would say about the Logos that it's the thought of God stamped upon the universe. It's it's, um, that by which God created with. That by which God... Uh, communicated to all of creation and to man. But I want you to hear this. What, what John is saying is that this word, this logos, is not a principle. It's, it's not something that, de- that defines how life works. This, this word is a living being, the source of life. That not a personification, but a a person and a person that is divine. The Word was uh, with God, and the Word was God, he goes on. That they're uh, the same essence. God, they're different. God is um, uh, the, his Father and he is Son. The, the same essence. They're different persons, but equally God. It's, it's kind of the, the climax of this declaration that John is making. He said, you know, he's already said the Word was with God, but here he said the Word was God. And he makes that distinction because it's possible to be with God and not be God. I mean, the angels were with God. Satan, the the archangel, was with God and still had the ability to be with God even after he fell. You can see that in Job 1. But John leaves no question about this. Not only was Jesus with God, he was God. All of his essence, all of his attributes, all of his being. Then he says, look, all things were made through him. It, it means by, by the means of. How were things made? They were, they were made through him. It isn't that Jesus just 
created something. He creates something, and it bears his personality. It describes His words describe how an artist produces things. An artist bears a mark of himself. It's like looking at a painting. It doesn't need the artist's signature. If the artist is really good, you can tell by looking at it. You can tell by looking at this. This is God's creation. Creation's Christ-formed. It bears the signature of Jesus. Young Life has this motto, and um, you'll see it if you see their promo videos or things like that. They'll say, you know, show all this fun, all this, and it says, you were made for this. In one sense, that's what John's saying. It sums it up perfectly. You were made for Jesus because you were made by Him. And then he goes on. Look, look at what he says. He says, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men there in verse 4. So not only does Jesus create, but He breathes life. He, he sustains it. It's ongoing. It's, it's procreating life. This is, he sets this in motion in creation. He animates creation physical life, but moral life, intellectual life, spiritual life, all those things. In fact, Paul will say in, on Mars Hill, for in Him we live and move and have our being. More than that, we don't just draw breath, we draw conclusions. We have intellectual capacity and moral capacity and spiritual capacity all created by the Word of God and the image of God, enlightened by God, to know God. As Augustine, who famously prayed, O oh God, you've made us for yourselves, for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Yet here in this prologue, and you see it later in a couple of chapters, John 3.19, it reads that men, they didn't love the light. They loved the darkness. And so in verse 5, he writes, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome. It. You, the light shines. You really say the light shines on is, is really how it is. The light shines on. And that tells us something, this present tense shines on. That though to all outward appearances, you'll get to the end of John's Gospel and it'll seem like Jesus will be fatally executed and that the darkness has won a decided victory. And Maybe you're in a place in life this morning. And it may seem in this present world there's darkness all around you. It's not light. It says the darkness shines on still, even now. It'll always be the deepest fact in all of history that in John's inspired words, it is the light that shines on in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. In all of this, these first five verses, they take us back actually to Genesis chapter 1. If you remember in Genesis 1, verse 2, it says, you know, the, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and, and darkness here right at the beginning is presented in the Bible as something, you know, as, as evil and death. It's used as that metaphor. It's not conducive 
to life. It was, it was the, the earth, it was chaos, it was emptiness, it was darkness, that there was no life, there was no light. In many ways, you can read that, that the work of creation was like a work of redemption. We don't have all the details. God's Word is interested in making sure that we know the power of God in creation. So I think that's why John, he takes us all the way back to the beginning, to creation, to, to redemption, to the, to the Creator, to the Redeemer. Created for the light, but we love the darkness. And the darkness, here in John 1, it covers over all humanity and it brings chaos and emptiness and death and, and a new work of creation is being announced by John. Yet it's another darkness spoken into. Another deep being hovered over. Another chaos restored. Another void that's going to be filled. Another separation that's announced. Another work of creation completed. Another Sabbath rest accomplished. The Word bringing into being the new creation in which God says once more, let there be light. You know, at Christmas time, we um, observe Advent and um, not very formally and not very liturgically, but we do remember we, the month of December, we want to prepare our hearts in the midst of the chaos of Christmas. We, we want to focus in on and, and, and meditate on and worship well the Christ of Christmas. And so we observe these Advent weeks and we begin them by, you know, we light a candle every week, sort of the candle in the darkness. And um, oftentimes I'll say, you know, in the first century and, you know, as the history of the church, I mean, Light came through candles, so before electricity, and, and, and light was really fragile. You know, I mean, somebody opens the door too quickly, it burn. You know, blow out the candle. You know, even in here, sometimes as we, you know, light those candles, and it's a good balmy December day. The air conditioners will kick on, and you know, sometimes even that can blow out the candle. But what he's saying here is that listen, the light of Jesus is powerful. It's eternal. It's it's not fragile at all. In fact. In His presence, it's the darkness that's extinguished. In fact, you can go to Revelation chapter 21, chapter 22, the beginning of chapter 22. It says, No longer will there be anything accursed. He's talking about the, the new heavens, the new earth. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants uh, will worship Him, and they'll see His face, and on the on his name will uh, his name will be on their foreheads and the night the night will be no more there'll be no need uh, for the light of a lamp or even the sun for the lord god will be their light and they'll reign forever and ever john will write those words it's as though the darkness gets blown out there's only well, that's what he's saying. He's going to go on here in uh, verses 6 through 13. And we'll look at those specifically next week. But he's going to about, talk about John. John comes as the witness. He bears witness about the light. The light comes into the world, yet people didn't, didn't know Jesus. He came to them as their creator. They, 
didn't know him. In fact, you'll find that they reject him. But if you receive him, then life comes to you. And then he picks up, and um, I want to skip down to verse 14, and I want you to see what he says. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, listen, so John came to understand Jesus as the word of God made flesh. The, the logos made flesh. Well, let that sink in for just a This that controlled everything. That kept chaos at bay. Was more than the people understood in the day. And John is saying that, that Logos became a man. God became man. So here's three examples to help that sink in for a second. One, imagine if the heat from the sun became a person. You have the sun, you, you have the heat, you don't have one without the other, and all of a sudden heat becomes a person. Here's another one. Gravity. You can't see it. You can't touch it. It's powerful. It's undeniable. Um, it's, it's present everywhere, right? If you jump off your roof, you're not going to fly because of gravity. It's like saying gravity became flesh. Well, wait a minute. If it becomes flesh, does that mean when I jump off the roof now, I do fly? No. No, no less gravity. But gravity became flesh. Here's, a, here's one other one. I'm stretching on this one, right? The Internet. It's invisible. I guess it's invisible. I don't know. You know, the World Wide Web connects the whole planet, lets you email somebody, Skype with somebody around the world. Imagine if the Internet became a person. You know, walks in the back of the doors and says, Hi, I'm the Internet. We'd be confused, right? I mean, we've got to feel the, the weight of what John's saying. That's exactly the kind of thing that John's saying. Now listen, those are inadequate examples, but they, they point to the truth of what John's saying. The Word of God became a person and dwelt among us. God became man. The Word of God took on flesh, lived among us. The Word that created the Word that created us became one of us. And at the same time, never ceased being God. Now let that sink in for a second. I've always been confused. I'm thinking, John, if you're starting this gospel and your goal is, is that, that you want people to believe, that, that your ultimate goal is you want them to believe that Jesus is the Son of of God. He's the Christ, the Son of God, and, and that by believing in Him, you'll have life. If that's the goal, I would have really thought John would start in verse 19. I mean, so 
that's a little, it's a, it's a warm-up, you know, I mean, kind of, kind of a slow burn to who Jesus is. But John, somehow, I think, comes in at the end and adds this, what we call the prologue, these first 18 verses. And it's as though John's saying, listen, I want you, reader, I want you to believe. I want you to know these things. And I am going to state the most impossible thing that you could possibly imagine right up in the beginning. That we don't, we don't come through the doorway of John's Gospel without going through the claims that he is making here. John came to understand this, or at the very least, able to write about it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And John worshipped Jesus as God. To, to the end of his life, he never waned, even after Jesus is crucified and then resurrected in a new and glorified body and ascends into heaven and, 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 and John's here and Jesus is gone, never stopped worshiping Him. And he likely is writing these words 40 or 50 years after Jesus has ascended to heaven. And I guess as he thought about Jesus every day, remembered everything Jesus taught, all the things He did, the way He was, all the conversations that they'd had. He remembered His arrest, He remembered His torture, his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. And then he watched the church grow. He watched the Spirit uh, uh, present in his life, in the lives of those who believed. He saw people dying for Jesus. Even John himself was tortured. And he comes to the end of the, his life and he still worships Jesus as God. In these first 18 verses, he writes about Jesus in a way that no other person has ever been written about. I mean, to, to the degree I would submit to you that, that if what John is writing here is not true, then we should cast it out as blasphemy. It, it's, a, it's a page that should be burned because he's writing that the Word of God becomes flesh and dwells among us. God became man. He says, we saw Him. We, we saw God. We heard God. We touched God. We killed God. Huge. I mean, it's actually more than we can comprehend in this whole lifetime. That's what John writes. Why what we say when we say the Incarnation, the Son of God, the, the Word of God became man and at the same time never ceased being fully God. That's why the, we'll find in John's Gospel the wind, obey, the wind obeys Him. The waves obey Him. That's why disease and sickness obey Him and demons obey Him and we're afraid of Him. Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. profound as anything written in the Bible. Four titles that he gives Jesus. He's called the Word in verse 1. He's called the Light. He's called the Life. The only Son from the Father. Through Christ the Word, God has become audible. Through Christ the Light, 
God has become visible through Christ's life. God has become tangible. And through Christ the Son, God's become knowable. You see, God, who's invisible and inaudible and intangible, has become all of those things in His Son, Jesus of Nazareth. And without the incarnation, God would be inaccessible to see we, we can't ascend to the heights of God. So God, through His Son, descends into humanity. Jesus is God come near. That's why in Matthew's Gospel He's called Emmanuel, God with us. And He came for two very specific reasons. Look at what it says in verse 16 again. Uh, the, the end of 14 says... Um, We've seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in 16, and and from the fullness, His fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. We've seen His glory. We've received His grace. Verse 18 was where I missed that. We're hoping you say that this morning. I hope at some point in your life you've caught a glimpse of the glory of God. Glory is this very important word. You'll see it show up in in John. It's hard to understand the message of the Bible if we don't understand the meaning of the word glory. And one of the definitions is glory is this outward shining of the inward being of God. You might think about it as the sun. I mean, you can't look directly at the sun without blinding yourself. But we can see the sunshine, the radiance of the sun. You see everything else because of the sun. If we were to see God directly, the Bible says, if we were to look at Him directly, we'd be consumed. No human being can bear the sight of God in His glory. The outward shining of His inward being, His, His glory. But in Jesus we behold see it in creation. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. See the glory of God in the created order and its beauty, its intricacy, its balance, but the truth is we've never been satisfied with the glory of God as seen in the universe. Human beings have wanted to see more of God than we can see in nature. Moses begs God to show me your glory is what Moses will say. We can see the glory of God in the heavens and on the earth. We've witnessed the miracles and the might of God. But He wanted more. He wanted to see more of God, to behold more of His glory. Have you ever wanted that? Have you ever wanted to see more of God? But God says, you can't see my face, Moses. Not because I don't love you. Because I'm infinitely holy. If you were to see my face, you'd wither up and die. So you remember Moses he puts Moses in the cleft of the rock. He walks by and Moses gets to see the backside. He sees you know, the reflection. It's so powerful. Moses comes off the mountain and has to wear a veil because the people of Israel can't now look at Moses. The prophets longed for it. 
the day when the glory would be revealed in Isaiah 40. You know, a voice cries in the in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, make straight in the, in the desert a highway for God. This ends up being John the Baptist. And then it says, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. The coming of Jesus. And then Jesus comes. The, the eternal Word of God made flesh and dwells among us. Live, literally, like he pitched a tent. And we beheld His glory. It's like the tabernacle. You know, at the end of Exodus 40, God frees the Israelites, brings them in to the wilderness, and is, um, then has them build a tabernacle, and His glory fills the tabernacle, and the, and the presence, the glory of God, is going to be with the Israelites. And then the question of, well, how do a people live with God in their midst? How do you live with the glory of God in your midst? And that's, then that's why he writes Leviticus, the book everybody fizzles out on in their yearly Bible reading. How do you live with God? Well, this is Leviticus. It's full of sacrifices. But ultimately, they couldn't. Their sacrifices became half-hearted at best. Ezekiel chapter 10. The glory of God leaves. At that time, the temple leaves. The, the glory leaves the people. They long for the glory to come back. When does it come back? Well, comes back here in Jesus. The, gl- the glory of God fills the Word made flesh. Verse 18, no one's ever seen God because we'd be consumed, but we've seen the glory of God, the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Those ever seen Jesus with eyes of faith their eyes have been opened to the reality of Jesus. We've seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus. In fact, Jesus will say later in this, He who's seen me has seen the Father. In fact, the rest of John's Gospel paints the story of Jesus, the, the picture of God's glory through Jesus. Scene after scene, story after story shows us the glory of the Son, full of grace and truth. He feeds the hungry heals the sick, honors women, welcomes little children, makes friends with sinners and outcasts. He even touches those that are untouchable. He got on his hands and his knees, we'll see, and he washed the disciples' feet. And you see the glory of God in all of those things. And above all, you see it on the cross where John's leading us. To believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and, 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 and in believing in Him that we'd have life, you have to go through the, the cross. And there's never been a brighter display of the glory of God than on the cross of shame. It's there that we see His glory. Well, not only have we received His glory, but He also um, has seen His glory, but He wants us to receive His grace. Relationship's not a matter of seeing Him. It's a matter of receiving something from Him. Seeing and receiving, they go together. As we study the Gospel of John, I hope that you see more of the glory of God as Jesus is portrayed and that you would be the recipient 
of what he calls grace upon grace. Four times in these verses he's going to talk about grace. Glory is the outshining of the inward being of God. Grace is the unmerited favor and pleasure of God. He's stooping. He's loving. He's serving. He's lifting. And like glory, grace is most vividly seen at the cross. Grace gives us what we do not deserve. If we only put our hand to receive it, God gives us this grace, forgiveness, the eradication of guilt and shame and a stained conscience. Grace brings us peace with God and and adoption into His family and gives us a whole new life in the Holy Spirit and a share in the glory that will be revealed. These gifts of grace are only the beginning, actually. John says it's out of His fullness we've received. We haven't received the fullness. We've received out of the fullness. It's like an ocean of grace, pure for drinking, satisfying the soul. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Let me ask you this morning. Have you seen the glory of God in His Son, Jesus? Have you caught a glimpse of it? Have you received His grace through His Son, Jesus? Listen, I'd say you don't do it all at once. It's a lifetime. I'd argue you will do it for eternity of seeing God in Jesus and receiving receiving grace through Jesus. I think that's why Paul prayed for the believers in Ephesus that they would see ever more the riches of His glory and grow ever more in their understanding of His grace. That something like what Lucy experiences with the Lion of Aslan the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's um, Aslan is the Christ figure. And in Prince Caspian, near the end of the, all the stories, uh, Lucy's grown older, and now she's meeting Aslan, and she gazed into his large, wise face. And he says, Welcome, child. Aslan, Lucy says, You're bigger. He says, Well, that's because you're older, little one. She says, not because you are. He says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. So my hope is, is that we work our ways, we work our way through the wonders of the Gospel of John. We'll find Christ bigger and bigger and bigger. We'll behold his glory and we will receive his grace. We come to know. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing in Him, have life. Everlasting life. So if you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that...